0: I will read for us the narrative of 1 Samuel chapter 11. If you have your Bibles turned there, if not, of course, it's printed in your bulletin. We are in these studies this fall looking at the commencement of the kingdom of God with a king. We are now with the ministries of Samuel and Saul. We are in that transition period between the days of the judges and the days, of course, of King David. But as I have mentioned to you almost every Sunday, it's not about Saul. It's not about Samuel. It's about Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. So when we read about the Savior King, I want to challenge you this morning, since you're comfortably seated and listening and your text is open in front of you, to find at least two... There are more than that, but find at list two places in this text as I read it where that could be said of Christ. Listen now to Samuel. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged jabesh Gilead, And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this occasion, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace to all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no way, no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. Then he mustered them at Bezek. The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of jabesh Gilead: Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. The men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go up to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they met Saul, king before the Lord. They made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offering before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The reading of the word of God. Amen. Well, did you catch the story? Was it horrible? <laughs> Was it ugly? Who in the world is this Nabash fellow? I'll tell you who he is. He's the king of the Ammonites. Who in the world are the Ammonites? The Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. You Remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham? Remember the Lord had told Abraham to leave all of his family behind and to go to a place where God would show him. That's what God said to Abraham. And Abraham didn't leave all his family behind. He kept a few, and Lot was one of them. And Lot was a lot of trouble. And what happened? You know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was Lot. And you know the story of Lot's wife who turned to the pillar of salt. But you may not know the story of Lot's daughters. And I'm not going to tell you the story because it is sordid and rancid, and I'm not just about to tell that story in a pulpit. You need to read it for yourself in Genesis 19. But that's where the Ammonites came from. They came from Lot. And they hated Israel. Along with their brothers, the Moabites, they formed great nations that dwelt on the southeast side of the land of Canaan, down really below, beyond the Jordan River, and going toward the desert areas. And you know about the Moabites. They were fierce people. And the Ammonites were as well. And whatever they liked, whatever they enjoyed, whatever God had blessed them with, and He had blessed them greatly. The one thing you'll know about the Ammonites is they hated Israel. They despised Israel. And every time they had a chance, they would do harm to Israel. When Israel was coming out of the wilderness and getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, the Moabites and the Ammonites resisted them. The Moabites gave them passage, although they called on Balaam to come curse them. You remember that story? But The Ammonites would not give passage and they harassed Israel all the time. So Nabash, to solidify his kingdom of these vicious people, the best thing he could do would be to humiliate the Israelites. You remember when Israel went into the land of Canaan, they didn't all cross the Jordan. Remember the, the tribes of Gad and Reuben and half tribe of Manasseh stayed behind on the east side of the Jordan and inhabited that land over close to where the Ammonites were. So we've got this incredible threat from this bordering neighbor that hates them so much and so that territory that bordered them on the east was always kind of a battleground just like we've been looking at the territory on the west was a battleground with the Philistines toward the coast. Israel's always in trouble with these two vexing enemies on either side of them, the Philistines and the Ammonites and the story of the early kings Saul and David will be battles with, and victories over these two hostile nations. It's interesting what you see a little bit in the nuance here. Nabash not only wanted to conquer Israel and, and, and harass Israel and plunder Israel, but he wanted to disgrace Israel. And one of the signs of disgrace in the ancient world was having an, an eye gouged out. Remember Samson? The Philistines gouged his eyes out when they captured him. It was humiliation and it rendered him helpless. But in this case, he only wanted to gouge out one eye, the right eye. And the reason, of course, is that as they marched, they would hold their shield with their left hand, which would cover their left eye. And then their right eye would be the one they would use for the spear and the sword in the fighting. So if he would gouge out their right eye, they couldn't fight. But if He left them, the left eye, they still could operate as slaves. They could get by. They could work in the fields. They could work in the mines. And and they could do slave labor. And that's what He wanted to do. He didn't want to just conquer Israel. Nabash wanted to humiliate Israel and enslave Israel. And He had got them to the point they were ready to give up. And so, this may be the only modern day application I make, but this is Armistice day. (laughs) And Israel sued for peace. They said, we'll become a vassal. We'll become your slaves. We'll become your people. Just don't kill us and don't harass us anymore and let us have our villages and our towns. And so they sued for peace. Nabash wasn't in any hurry to humiliate them. He said, I'll give you a week. They asked for a week. And here in that week, during that seven-day period, the men of Jabash Gilead put out urgent messages throughout Israel. Is there anyone that can come and save us? Is there a Savior anywhere?" And there was a response. The Word got immediately from Jabash to Gibeah. Now if you'll read the last three chapters or the the latter chapters of Judges, you'll find an incredible story And it'll tell you about the relationship of these two towns. So we don't have time to go into it this morning, but it really amounted to a civil war within Benjamin because an atrocity, which once again, I will not describe to you from the pulpit, had happened in Gibeah. And the only place that the survivors could find wives were in Jabesh. And so these lands, these two two city-states knew each other. And Saul was from the Benjamin city of Gibeah. And Saul, you remember last time we saw, he had been anointed. He had been uh, told by God he was going to be the king. They had brought him together. He had won the lottery. He was the king. They had brought him out. And then the Scripture says, strangely, they all went back to their homes. Kind of like the old days of the judges. You know, there's a, Saul is a transition character. He's a lot like a judge. But in this passage, we'll see that he's more than an average judge. He's a super judge. You take everything that, that um, uh, Othniel and and uh, 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 Gideon, and Samson, and some of the judges did. Saul did that much and more. He was kind of the consummate power of judge. But the judges were bivocational. They had their trade back home, but then if they needed to, they would rule Israel, or fight a war, or, or do some kind of a service to the, to the general population of Israel. And Saul had gone back to his farming we saw he's always comfortable around the farm animals. We saw him hiding among the donkeys last week, and now he's back there plowing with the oxen. He's comfortable at home, but the word comes to him. And the word comes to him of what is happening down there with the Ammonites. And the scripture says that the Lord did not give Saul a chance to make up his own mind. Saul asked the question, "What is wrong with the people that they are weeping?" Interesting, Saul has an interest in the people now. God has given him a heart for service and for ministry. He's sensitive. He's aware. God has tenderized his heart. And so when they asked him, the people said, told the story about uh, what was going to happen to the the men of Jabesh. And the Scripture says, so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. Verse 6, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and his anger was greatly kindled. There's your power. There's your motive. Even though the people in many ways had turned their back on the Lord, the Lord was still King of Israel. He was not going to relinquish. He's the one. God's the one that moved and motivated and empowered His servant Saul to get about the job he needed to go. And the Lord put an urgency upon him. This is the same language it's used with uh, Samson and others in Gideon, where the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon them. When the Spirit comes in, there's a mighty rushing wind, a noise of a mighty rushing wind, like Pentecost. And he came on Saul. Saul had been numbered among the prophets. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon him before, and it had began to work in his soul. And God was getting this man who really had a... Bare credentials to be president, to be president. To be, to be, when does that come from? A whole week of thinking about the presidency and, the, and this little election and all that. To be king, God had placed him in that role, and now God was going to empower him in that role. He had to. <laughs> I'll just stop right here and tell you, if God don't do it, He won't get did. It just won't be done. God's work starts with God's Spirit. The message comes years later to the prophet Zerubbabel, what he tells God's people, it's not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And that passage goes on to read that there's a great mountain. And God tells Zerubbabel to look at that mountain and say, grace, grace to you. And it will become like a level plain. Boy, if that's not gospel, I don't know what is. You think about it for a minute. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul and what is really an impossible task is done, not only in possibility in terms of difficulty, but in terms of timing. This whole thing was done without texting and without emailing. All over Israel, they mustered all of this giant army, put it together. Saul got the people together. He took the oxen that he was plowing with and immediately hacked them into pieces and sent them throughout the land and said, I'll do this to your oxen if you don't show up first thing Wednesday morning or Thursday or whatever day it was. And the Bible says, the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord came upon the people. It's translated dread. The dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. There's nothing that will motivate and unify God's people and make them one like the Spirit of God and like the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of all things operational in God's kingdom. Nothing gets done in God's kingdom without God Himself rushing in, using men and women to be sure. But He does it by His power. And that's exactly what happened to the victory. This this is not about about Saul. It's not about Samuel. It's not about uh, the the people of Israel. This is about Christ. These little vignettes in the Old Testament are, I believe, historically true. I believe it literally happened. And it happened exactly uh, one millennium, thousand years before Christ. There's a millennial kingdom. It starts with Saul and David and it goes for 1,000 years and it ends with Christ. The true King comes. That's your millennial kingdom the Bible talks about. There is this moving of God upon his people. And that day, Israel became like God wanted him to be all along. Here's God's mighty spirit. here's God's power. And by the way, just I just happen to remember. Preaching over in the Sunday night service a few years ago, I preached on the text out as a rubbable, and, and I don't have my notes before me, but my vague memory tells me that those are different words not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And what might is, is strength. That's your arm, that's your resources, that's your horses, that's your chariots, that's everything you've got. But the power is the dignity, it's the office, it's your influence, it's your prestige. God eliminates every one of those. Your might, all your strength and your resources, your capacity to do something with the arm of flesh. It's not by that. The kingdom of God is not built that way. Neither is it by power. It's not by prestige. It's not by influence. I don't know how many missionary methods I've heard in my lifetime where they talk about the way you do this is you find the most important people and you. I don't see that happening in the New Testament. I don't see it advocated in the old. The way God's kingdom gets built and people are drawn into it and made into the kind of people they need to be is by God's Spirit, His sovereign calling and His work upon their life by His Spirit. And the details of the battle are kind of interesting. I'll briefly tell them for you. We just read them a moment ago. He mustered all the people, a gigantic army. About a tenth of them were from Judah, the tribe of Judah. And then the other nine-tenths were from the other tribes of Israel. He musters them together and He divides them into three companies. And this is the way it's going to work. The men of Jabesh are going to go back to the Ammonite king and they're going to say, we surrender, we, we give up, we'll be your slaves, you can gouge out our eyes. You know, they, they pretended to have that, so they surrendered. And of course, relaxed and feeling the victory, the king comes out with his people and Saul had arrayed a triangulation around them to A, ambush them, in the darkness and also surround them and also take them by surprise. You've got some pretty good military tactics going right there. You've got nighttime warfare. <laughs> it's interesting how the wisdom of God is better than the wisdom of men sometimes when you even draw up battle plans. And by the way, the whole Bible is a book of warfare. So often in our churches, we think of the work of the kingdom of God is as, as business. It's operational is how do we employ business principles to do the work of the kingdom? The principles of the work of the kingdom of God are warfare principles. The church is on a war footing, not a business standing. And I, I don't see us gearing up that way, quite. Often. We're not geared for battle, and yet the whole of God's work on earth is a warfare from the days of the enmity in the garden all the way through the Old Testament, in Egypt, the Philistines, in Assyria, in Babylon, in Rome. Everywhere you see it, it's a warfare. But it's a warfare against a particular kind of enemy, and that's the enemies of God. And that's exactly who these Ammonites are. They hated God and His people. And that's who's out for us, by the way. If you're a friend of Christ, and He calls us friends in the Gospels, then you're an enemy to the world. The world is at enmity against you. And Jesus has already given us all the words of comfort He can. He said, they hated me before they hate you. And why we want to be friend of the world, why we want the world view of the world, why we want the world lifestyle of the world, why we want to be world-like, I don't know. Can't we discern and can't we work together to understand what what the godly code is and live according to the godly code and not to the mores of the the world. And by the way, the world's morals are crashing down around us. We've lost morality, sexual morality. I think we've lost truth. I don't think truth reigns in our culture anymore in, in several places. We've lost the life-death struggle in many places. We're in a warfare. We're in a battle. God's people are always helpless and on the defensive. And that's why we call upon the Lord. That's what we do. He is the one that fights our battles. But anyway, they they fought this battle and they won such that when the battle was over, they had scattered the Ammonites and, and dispersed them that they didn't bother them anymore. And this was probably the greatest victory in the life of Saul. He had some other victories, and and there's some more to Saul's reign, of course. But this is the one that spiritually put everything back the way it ought to be. I don't want you to take my hermeneutics too seriously, but listen to my interpretation. (laughs) When I saw that, I saw there's another place. That battle took place between the wee hours of the morning before dawn and the heat of the day. That's the time Christ was fighting our battle. It was in the wee hours of the morning that Judas betrayed Him and they came and took Him to the Sanhedrin. It was before daylight, illegally, that they assembled the Sanhedrin to pass judgment upon Him and deliver Him to Pilate to be crucified. And during those early morning hours, Jesus was undergoing five or six different trials, depending on how you look at it, where He was on trial and there, He opened not His mouth because He was bearing our sins. And they put a crown, the crown of the curse, the thorns upon His head. And they mocked Him. We saw a little bit last week when we saw the, what they did to Christ. Christ standing there on the pavement. And all of that took place in the hours of the morning. And then they took Him out and they crucified Him. And He hung on the cross to the heat of the day. Spiritual warfare the ultimate spiritual warfare of the cosmic universe, the whole creation of God took place that morning on that hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus hung, suffering, bearing our sins, dealing with our sins and the shame and the guilt and the pain and the punishment. And just like that ordeal of Jesus was bloody as it could be, the ordeal in this this ancient story here that brings us to it and shows us as bloody as it could be it's a bloody battle but it even gets bloodier when they won that great victory the men of Israel were as excited as they could be and they swore their loyalty to Saul and they called for a purging of the camp they said where who is it that said shall Saul reign over us well the passage we didn't, weren't able to get to, a short passage last week. It wasn't in our assigned text. But in the end of chapter 11, when Saul had been uh, recognized as the king, Samuel gave Saul a book that described the rights and duties of the king. We've seen this probably Deuteronomy 17 and some explication of it. And, and uh, gave Saul some homework to go home and study the Word of God as to what it meant for him to be king. And as he, they left that meeting and everyone turned, and said the men of valor went with him whose hearts God had touched. God had moved the hearts of the people to embrace Saul as their king on this occasion as he won the lottery. But verse 27, one of these little verses just kind of thrown in the Bible that you kind of read over. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? How can this crucified, battered, bruised, mocked, condemned, humiliated, hungering and thirsting and rotting man hung on a bloody cross save us? Jesus hung on the cross. He said, hey, you talked about salvation. Save yourself. Even the thief on the cross mocked him. The question rings out How can this man save us? How can this man save us? Well, Jesus saves us the same way Saul saved Israel not by might, not by power, but by spirit. Was the Spirit of God involved in the life and ministry of Christ at all? Let me just, I sketched out a few here as I was thinking about it. At His birth, the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she conceived and bore a son and it was Christ. At His baptism, the descension of the dove upon Him, representing the Holy Spirit. In His temptation, He was ministered to by the Spirit of God. When He went into the synagogue in Capernaum, He announced that the the Spirit of the Lord was upon Him, that He had been anointed for that, quoting Isaiah 61. All throughout Jesus' ministry, everything He did had to do with the power of the Spirit of God in His miracles and in His teaching. And even the horror of hanging on the cross when the Spirit of God, the Holy God, departed from Him and He cried, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? The Spirit of God was ministering to Jesus and as He hung there in our place, He was receiving that awful, isolation and abandonment and banishment from the Spirit of God that is hell, that is the destiny of the lost. And Jesus was going through all of that in our place, as our substitute, on our behalf. Paul doesn't mess around before he ever gets too many sentences into the book of Romans. In writing the great gospel treatise of the book of Romans, St. Paul says, he was raised by the power of of the spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a holy spirit work in him. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I mean, if these are not New Testament gospel lessons, I don't know. Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of God Christ, I mean the spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost. And I don't know how much similar or how much different it was, or how similar it was, but that's what happened at Pentecost. There was a rushing of the Spirit of God upon the people of God. That's how God works. When you've been saved, and by the way, that word is used three times in this text. That's, what, that's the theme of this chapter. Salvation. It's the word yasha. We get our word Joshua, our name, Yeshua, Jesus. Savior, Deliverer, Rescuer. Three times, deliverance has come to Israel. When you have been saved by the power of God, by the bloody ordeal and battle that Christ went through from the middle of the morning watch till the heat of day on your behalf and saved you, you will know that there's a deliverer. There's a Savior. And there's only one thing that's left for you to do. And that's to offer up a thank offering, a peace offering. And that's what the people did. When Samuel saw what all had happened, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Samuel's heart was full. We're back to where we ought to be. Samuel had thought probably for a while, I think we've lost it. But now he saw, this is how God designed it to operate. God is in control. His spirit is running things. He's the power. He's the might. And Saul is his servant. This is the right order. This is the way it ought to be. Let's renew the kingdom. It's the way it ought to be. It's interesting, even Saul had come to an interesting place in his life. There's some people said, these worthless men who ask, who shall, reign, shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men that we may put them to death. And listen to the heart of the Savior. Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now, nobody here is going to be put to death today. Not a man, not a woman, not a boy, not a girl is going to die for their sins today. Even if you mocked, even if you ridiculed, even if you were an unbeliever, even if you had sins in your life, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to be put to death today because there is a Savior in Israel. The Lord has worked salvation. There's no reason for you to be put to death for no matter what you've said or done before. You don't need to die for your sins. Christ has died for our sins.